today's episode of The Road to Nicaea contains some descriptions of human suffering, including a very brief description of violence done to children. If you find this kind of material triggering or otherwise upsetting, to a degree that the podcast would not be edifying for you, please feel free to give this episode a miss. As this is an interview, it was conducted on Zoom, so please be patient with a slightly lower audio quality than you're normally used to. Thank you, and enjoy the podcast. Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Supplemental, The Suffering God, an interview with Professor Paul Gavriluk. One of the recurring themes on our Nicene journey has been the question of divine suffering. You may remember that many of the early skeptics of Nicaea objected to its language precisely because they thought that any being who could suffer, as the word had suffered, could not possibly have the same substance as the Father. And throughout our journey, I have several times mentioned a background assumption in the period called divine impassibility. Now, divine impassibility refers to a belief that God is immune to suffering, or immune to pathos, if you want to use the Greek word for it. Now, throughout the 20th century and into our own day, the doctrine of divine impassibility has come under attack. Many theologians argue that this is one of the original sins of the period we have been studying, and that an affirmation of God's voluntary suffering is crucial to addressing human suffering. For many of these thinkers, the doctrine of divine impassibility that is employed in the Trinitarian debates of the 4th century is an important component of patriarchy, oppression, and even ecological devastation. Today, we're lucky to have one of the foremost experts in the field to discuss these questions and more. Professor Paul Gavriluk holds the Aquinas Chair in Theology and Philosophy at the University of St. Thomas. Professor Gavriluk is also president and founder of the International Orthodox Theological Association, and he's just released a call for papers for a conference they'll be having in June of 2025 in Rome. The name of the conference is Nicaea and the Church of the Third Millennium Towards Catholic Orthodox Unity. The call for papers will be open until March 1st, 2024. If you would like to submit something for their consideration, or if you'd just like to learn more about the conference, go to iota-web.org forward slash Rome 2025. Again, that's iota-web.org, Rome 2025. A widely published author, Professor Gavriluk has written in nine languages. Some of his most well-known titles are The Spiritual Senses, Perceiving God in Western Christianity, Georges Florovsky and the Russian Religious Renaissance, and today's text, The Suffering of the Impassable God, The Dialectics of Patristic Thought. In this work, Professor Gavriluk criticizes the theory of theology's fall into Hellenic philosophy and offers a reappraisal of the often discussed, often misunderstood doctrine of divine impassibility. Professor Gavriluk, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad to have you. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Yes. Now, at the beginning of your book, 
you describe something called the theory of theology's fall into Hellenistic philosophy. And most of your book is sort of a long refutation of this theory. What exactly is this theory, and why has it come to be so prominent in certain corners of the church and academy? Uh, so the original sensibility that there is something deeply problematic when Christianity engages philosophy, you already can find in Luther. But certainly in the 19th century, this acquires a much more profound, not just rhetorical, but theoretical cast, particularly in the work of the 19th century liberal Lutheran uh, historian of dogma, Adolf von Harnack. Mm-hmm. And so for Harnack, uh, so Harnack's history of dogma, and this was a highly influential multi-volume exposition of patristic thought. And so what Harnack develops is a narrative of the corruption of dogma. So you can think, for example, of John Henry Newman in terms of a positive account of the development of doctrine. And then, if you will, um, his nemesis later in the 19th century, Adolf von Harnack develops a similar theory was a negative sign. And the, and the sign here is that from the second century on, the original gospel is progressively Hellenized, and the word in Harnack at least means something very, very negative. And what it means primarily is that it's co-opted what Harnack calls Greek metaphysics. And so the idea is that the more Greek philosophy you add to the gospel, the worse things get, and the more you depart from the original message, which Harnack understood to be the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and people sometimes add the neighborhood of Boston, but that's not in the original Harnack. Um, so why would this particular theory be a problem? First of all, it would be wrong to say that somehow any borrowing from philosophy is unproblematic. So there, I'm completely in agreement with Harnack. Hmm. And so, for example, if you if we're thinking, let me and let me also give an example of where too much philosophy or a particular form of metaphysics actually tremendously skews, and I would say corrupts a Christian understanding of God. So, for example, if you think uh, with Alfred North Whitehead of process mm-hmm. metaphysics, what process metaphysics does, it essentially converts God into an aspect of the world. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, it really prevents one from talking about God as the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Now, that, in my judgment, is a big problem. Mm-hmm. I think most Christians who uphold a vision of God as triune and that is based on Revelation, would say that that's a big problem. So here you have a really good example where uh, philosophy does not do Christianity any good. However, in Harnack's case, again, his argument is that, first of all, there is something monolithic called Greek metaphysics. So that's one thesis that is really relatively easy to disprove based on historical evidence. Now, you might ask how. Well, Consider two proposals that existed in the Hellenistic world, the world that the church fathers and the apostles indwell. So the first proposal is Stoic. And Stoics essentially were pantheists. That is to say, they believed that the world was coextensive with God and that the world in some sense is God. They could see it as impersonal divine fire. They could see it as subject to conflagration. Uh, They could also use the language of polytheism very freely and very openly. So the Stoic position was pantheism. 
And I think most Christians today would recognize that, again, pantheism and whatever the metaphysical vision of God you want to develop is really incompatible with divine revelation. Because in divine revelation, you have to retain something that transcends this world, something that is above and beyond this world, some, something that surpasses anything that is in the world. And so supernatural would be a word for it. Now, compare this to Platonism. And in the Platonic scheme, you very, very clearly have the distinction between the visible and invisible reality or the reality of the material and the reality of the forms. Um, that clearly is a project where the transcendent is very significant, metaphysically and epistemologically, meaning for Plato's theory of knowledge. It's important that you have the forms that transcend central experience. And clearly, that's something very, very different from the Stoics. So the idea, therefore, that the fathers, that the church fathers, the church thinkers could embrace something that is called monolithically Greek metaphysics is a really serious problem. So that's my first objection to the Harnakian scheme. My second main objection to Harnak's scheme is that on any account of, of Greek metaphysics, the Christian doctrines of the Incarnation and the Trinity would be either completely nonsensical or scandalous. Uh, they're nonsensical. They're nonsensical because if you're going to have three agents on later Platonic scheme developed by Plotinus, those agents would be, in fact, hierarchically structured. So it, it's really fundamental for uh, later Platonism that you really have different levels of reality and different structures of reality. And the divine, this is really significant, participates in these different levels of reality. So the notion that you will have three agents that are transcendent and uncreated and therefore qualitatively and fundamentally different from anything in creation, that fundamental idea, that fundamental distinction between created and uncreated would simply be alien to late Platonic thought. Mm -hmm. On the incarnation front, this idea that the highest divine being would actually participate in the world of matter and in the world of sensual experience Again, on Platonic, simply on pure, shall we say, pagan Platonic grounds, would be a really serious problem. So what does this mean? This means that, of course, early Christian theologians used some elements of philosophical language. But my argument is that they have significantly baptized this language. And what they came up with was both distinct from, let's say, later forms of Platonism um, and also was faithful, ultimately, I would argue, faithful to the divine revelation. Thank you for that that very helpful answer. So if I'm, if I'm hearing you right, there are kind of two components to this. The first is that there is no one monolithic thing called Greek philosophy for, um, for the Cappadocians to adopt anyway. Um, and second, you know, where there are Greek philosophies, they're perfectly aware of some of the points of tension between them and the Christian revelation. And in general, you know, in general, um, they work to baptize those philosophies rather than sort of adopting them whole scale and saying, well, our faith has, has to change if something like the incarnation is going to be a problem for our philosophical commitments. That's exactly, that's exactly right. In the later version of this theory that's applicable to our conversation, specifically, mm -hmm. Jürgen Moltmann and a few others have made this bold claim that apathia or impassibility um, is effectively almost an axiom in Greek metaphysics. Mm -hmm. And that particular claim is simply historically wrong. 
Now, why is it wrong? Well, it's very simple. It's very simple to point to point out that it's wrong. So consider, for example, a very, very popular scheme of divine agency uh, that was espoused by the Epicureans. The Epicurean gods are very emotional. They're not apathetic at all. They enjoy they really enjoy life. It's just that they're also completely unconcerned about human beings. And as far as Epicurus and later Epicureans were concerned, that's actually a good thing. And the reason it's a good thing, because now human beings are liberated from the fear of the divine, because typically divine agents do certain things that are lethal for human beings. And so because of that, there's therefore no fear of the divine. And then because at death I disintegrate, there's also no fear of death. So here is a great example where you can have a highly emotional, hyper-emotional gods really enjoying themselves as, you know, true philosophers or playboy deities, however else you want to sort of describe them, but at the same time, completely unconcerned about the world. So this idea that the more emotional God gets is also, it also means the more invested the divine is in, in, in the world, that wasn't necessarily a, an obvious proposition. Yeah. Uh, to to the world that the church fathers indwelt. And I would argue also that philosophically, that's not a particularly coherent position. Right. And this sort of moves us to the question of what divine impassibility actually is for, mm -hmm. you know, the, the church fathers. You in the book talk about it as an apophatic qualifier of divine emotions. What do you mean by that phrase? How is it different from simply saying that God doesn't experience emotions or, you know, that, that God is having a good time up in heaven and doesn't really care about what's happening on earth at all? Again, a great question. And I realize that apophatic qualifier is a bit of a mouthful. Okay. <laughs> so let's just use the examples that I've used uh, m m most recently. And that is, for example, let's take, let's take the distinction between uncreated and created. So mm -hmm. think of, think with me uh, about the word uncreated. I think of what this word is actually doing, how it's actually functioning in the, whenever we use it, whenever we use it in discourse. And so, for example, and the word uncreated sort of shows up in the creed because we say begotten. And what does it mean to be begotten? Well, there aren't that many analogies that help us there, but we immediately say not made. Right. right? So whatever other distinctions we want to make, it's that to be uh, born of the father in this case, uh, means actually not to be in some sense created or made. So when we say that God is uncreated, what are we saying? Are we saying, for example, that God simply lacks the property of being created or that God is non-existent? Well, clearly not. We're not saying that. But we are saying, we are saying at the same time is that God is none of the created beings. Mm -hmm. What, what we're saying is that God surpasses everything in create, in creation. Now, uncreated is not a particularly odd, a negative notice. The reason I use the word apophatic is because there is, you know, in, in the word aktistos, there is a, um, a, a prefix, a, a, that could be seen as a privative of what follows. Okay. And so if you think, for example, of God as being invisible, again, this is not the case that God simply lacks the property of being seen. It's not simply that God doesn't show up on our radar, if you will, or doesn't belong to sort of the right wavelength so that our eyes cannot track him. But again, the invisibility of God, for example, does not prevent God's omnipresence, being, being present everywhere. 
the invisibility of God does not prevent the manifestation of God in the incarnation. You see, mm -hmm. so it's really rather crucial in this case that you do have the invisible that then manifests itself in the visible. Mm -hmm. And frankly, there is nothing particularly too extraordinarily supernaturally magical about this, because you could also say that even there is something profoundly mysterious about human beings mm -hmm. and about human personhood that also constantly seeks the manifestation in the visible, but is mm -hmm. never exhausted by the visible. Mm -hmm. So that's a way also of speaking about this. So, so if you, so if you, if we're now turning to the to the notion of impassibility, my claim simply is this: that impassibility does not mean God cannot experience emotions. Full stop. It does not mean God is just apathetic, disinterested, unemotional. In fact, there isn't a single patristic text that speaks of it in, in these terms. Mm -hmm. But what the text rather suggests is that when God undergoes or experiences or is subject to emotionally colored states, such as love, such as compassion, such as empathy, such as being the lover of humankind, etc. Um, when God is said to, uh, when these things are predicated of God, they have to be predicated of God in a divinely fitting manner, theopreppes. So we have to purify her language of various things that we typically attribute to human beings. And one of the crucial elements, of course, is that God endures these things voluntarily yes and i wonder you know it sounds to me like what you're saying is in some ways we don't want to say god doesn't experience emotions full stop because that would be implying we knew more about god than we actually did um yes, yes. and the church fathers really kind of go in two directions about this some for example do say that let's say uh let's take a problematic case or at least a much more difficult case and that is uh, the all the statements in Scripture, both in the Old and the New Testament, that speak of God as getting angry. Okay, and so that's a really so. How does God become angry? Well, God doesn't become angry in the manner in which, you know, a bad father would become angry just getting mad for mm -hmm. the sake of just getting mad. Mm -hmm. Divine anger in both testaments is a form of divine reaction to usually human. Profound to the breach of the covenant, to mm -hmm. uh, human sinfulness, etc. So, in the same manner in which it would be entirely appropriate morally to feel angry about either um, a social condition of injustice, or, mm -hmm. for example, you know, if somebody in front of me is raping a child, that would be a moment where not just anger, but also significant form of intervention, in some cases violent. Any intervention that is associated with force would be entirely appropriate. So, so I'm talking. I'm I'm sort of I'm bringing this particular example because in this particular case, emotions really track moral judgments, mm -hmm. and they are not misleading, but rather they, in a sense, they lead us to the right form of behavior. Right. And so the <laughs> this is as close as it gets, if you will, to mm -hmm. the way in which we can analogically speak then of God mm -hmm. as perhaps experiencing these emotions. Yes. Yeah. The analogy I've sometimes used with parishioners for these sorts of things is I'll say, okay, let's say you have an animal in your lap that is making sort of a low, rumbling, guttural noise. Well, if that animal is a cat, then it's purring, and that means it's happy. If that animal is a dog, that means it's growling and something is bothering it. 
In other words, to sort of interpret the the phenomena, you need to know something about the kind of being that is making it. But of course, since God exceeds our comprehension, it's very difficult for us to, you know, to be able to say, well, this is exactly what is going on in God's head, right? Because God doesn't have a human mind any more than God has a human body. The most we can say is, insofar as certain emotions of ours indicate moral perfections, right? It's a good thing to be angry when injustice occurs. It's a good thing to feel love and compassion for other human beings. Insofar as those emotions seem to be perfections, we expect they have some kind of a source in God, and there is something in God that mirrors that, because otherwise, how would we have it? But that's about as much as we can say. Um, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think I really like your examples with the animals, because they indicate also that we we, we will all agree that uh, these uh, feelings, for example, these sensations, obviously occur in animals. But and we also inevitably are going to anthropomorphize, in other words, to speak in anthropomorphic terms right. in, in in terms that are human like mm -hmm. about the animal life. But as long as we understand that these are still analogies or metaphors, as long as we simply understand that we're stretching our language in order to understand something. And mm -hmm. and frankly, analogies and metaphors are absolutely inevitable. I think right. we're really on 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 sure foundations. Yeah. And uh, and the same applies mutatis mutandis to God, the exception being, of course, in the case of animals, we're speaking of beings that in some sense are less than us in mm -hmm. a variety of ways. And then, of course, in the case of God, we're talking about an agent that infinitely transcends us. And therefore, you're right, we have to be much more cautious about what, in fact, we can and cannot say. And yet, I also think that divine revelation should not leave us speechless, that in fact, we are given abundant knowledge about divine life. And I think it's appropriate, therefore, uh, with due caution, at the same time, theologize about it. Right. Which is, I can't help but mention here, you know, this is one of the reasons why all of the parties in this conflict think scripture is so absolutely important. We have, you know, in the Bible, we have, if you like, sort of God-authorized language for talking about God. You know, it's it's always kind of amusing to me when I hear the the theory of theologies fall into Hellenic philosophy, because having read so many of these texts in my own seminary education, and then again for this podcast, I mean, so much of what everybody is doing is just arguing about the scriptures. You know, yeah. it's long, you know, hundreds of pages of discussion about how we interpret Proverbs 8 or the prologue of John or anything else. Um because they say this is, you know, this is where we work out our account of our account of language and how we can speak of God. That's and exactly that's exactly right. Ninety percent of the game in patristic uh, writings and ninety percent of polemics is precisely argument about scripture. Yes. Uh, we might agree or disagree on their specific choices. What was evident to them that these particular scriptural texts were relevant. Uh, we might take exception to that, but what we would endorse is precisely the fact that they were arguing or were uh, often the hermeneutics. Of, mm -hmm. In other words, they were really arguing over what appropriate theory of language would um, and and what what sort of rules of discourse would apply. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, to to kind of bring this home to the Arian controversy. Um, you have Arians arguing on the basis of the fact 
that Christ felt pain, that he is said to sweat, for example, that he is said to hunger, etc. So on the basis of the fact that these human passions, and the word pathos is very, very stretchable and broad in Greek, mm -hmm. nearly untranslatable, but it means change, it means weakness, it means something that somebody undergoes against the person's will, etc. Right. And you have so, a you have a sentence in your book that I particularly like. I can't remember if you're quoting somebody else, but you essentially say you can almost use pathos to just describe sort of anything that's part of the human experience of yes. being weak, immutable, of having things done to you against your will. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's uh, yes, it's true. It, it, it truly is a very, very broad term connoting suffering, connoting change, connoting, well, bad accidents. Mm -hmm. And so, so a classical example of pathos, for example, is a situation where King Oedipus in Aeschylus mm -hmm. confronts his father without knowing that that's his father and kills him. So this is a pathos occurring to the king of Thebes, in this case, by mm -hmm. the hand of his son. So, who, of course, doesn't really know what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, 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 so there is a sort of there's a very tragic element there for Dupatos. And in that regard, uh, what you have is the Aryan party, and particularly, actually, Arius himself, but then a number of people who sympathized with the position, uh, bishops, etc., arguing, well, you have all of these human characteristics applied to the figure of the Gospels, to Jesus Christ. These characteristics are completely unseemly are not fitting the high God. Therefore, clearly, the Logos could not possibly be of the same substance, on the same level, as the high God or as the Father. And I'm using this expression, the high God, because that's what shows up often in the Aryan sources. Yeah, often they'll refer to the Father as the highest one. Um, or Eunomius loves the term ungenerated, um, mm -hmm. or the ungenerate. So, and as we talk about kind of the significance of Christ undergoing pathos, undergoing suffering, you know, we've talked a little bit about what that has meant for the anti-Nicenes, namely, this is not the highest God. For that proto-Orthodox community that will be vindicated, what for them was the significance of Christ's suffering? Yes, so it's this, the matter, for me at least, the matter will be articulated much better in a later uh, Christological controversy and by by Cyril of Alexandria. However, mm -hmm. however, there is an important landmark that is reached by Athanasius, mm -hmm. uh, and particularly in the letter to Epictetus, where the claim is that the Scripture does give us a twofold narrative in which certain things are ascribed to Christ's divinity and other things are ascribed to Christ's humanity. And so what Athanasius is not grappling yet with is the matter in which the two are then brought together. Mm -hmm. And so what you find in Cyril of Alexandria, and that is a later development, also, of course, emanating from the same region, from the same school in Egypt, but um, a, a few generations after uh, Athanasius, and Cyril is very deliberately building on the foundation that was um, given by Athanasius. But what you, what you find is the notion 
that the Logos made the suffering of his humanity his own. Mm -hmm. So this important language of appropriation, yeah. uh, what will become also known on both East and West, but it's particularly significant in the West, communicatio idiomatum, communication mm -hmm. of idioms. It's not quite the language of Athanasius, but it's certainly one could somewhat anachronistically interpret it as such. Mm -hmm. We do find already in Athanasius such language. It's just that its fuller development comes later. Because the stress, one has to understand that it's, um, it all depends, if you will, with which version of rationalization of incarnation one is debating. Mm -hmm. And so what, if what's at stake is Christ's full divinity, and if both parties recognize that for this agent to be fully divine, in some sense, this agent has to surpass suffering. Because mm. if the agent is enmeshed in suffering, it's not obvious at all in what sense this agent is still uncreated. So there is that, there is that, that element that's important. And so Athanasius' then insistence is on the fact that these characteristics effectively make the figure of the Gospels also human. Mm -hmm. And because for Arius, for, I mean, because Arian scheme, Arian Christology, assume that you have a passable, changeable logos, assuming human body. Right. And not, and this is rather significant, and this will be passed on to Apollinaris and mm -hmm. others, and not a fully human constitution that at least on the fourth, fifth century Anthropology would also include rational soul. Mm -hmm. So you have the replacement of the rational soul by the logos, and then the logos, if you will, is doing all the work and the suffering. And why can he do it? Well, because he's a subordinate God, because he's not, he's not quite the same as the Father. Yes, yeah. and so that's, in some ways, the way of squaring the circle of the incarnation is to say, well, if we have kind of a lesser God or a medium God, you know, who can suffer, who is changeable, then we don't have to explain how you how we have an immutable God walking around in first century Palestine, growing in knowledge and favor with God, as Luke's gospel says, right? Then we could just like, in a way, it removes some of the logical contradiction that could be exactly. seen to that, that, you know, that could be attributed to the proto-Orthodox side. And I mean, you do get some wild statements, you know, there are ways in which the proto-Orthodox position not only is a problem for metaphysical schemes, but for language itself, right? To yes. say things like the impassable God suffered in the flesh, or, um, you know, a common ascription of, of Mary, the mother of God, is she's called wider than the heavens. Mm. Why? Well, because in her womb, she contained the creator of the heavens whom heaven and earth cannot contain. And, you know, this gets back to, you know, what you called appropriation or the communicatio idiomatum, you know, was the fleshly body in Mary's womb, the one, you know, who created the heavens or the thing that created the heavens? Well, no, that's a created piece of flesh, but it's assumed by the logos. And so the subject that we have in Mary's womb is, in fact, the creator of all which allows you to say these wildly paradoxical things. That's no, that's exactly right. And I agree, Father Ben, that we need to acknowledge also the sheer difficulty of the questions that we're getting into. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's one thing to call something a paradox. It's a different thing to, in fact, explain how something that looks like an apparent contradiction 
in fact, is, amounts to a significant paradox. And I would say this, it's precisely this very point, and that is the orthodox sensibility, and I think it's really consistent in the debate against the Gnostics, against the subordinationist strand, and against Nestorians, was to say, no, it's actually, it's precisely the true God. It's the true divine agent that is involved in suffering, but it's involved in suffering in a manner fitting God. And it's deeply, in other words, without compromising divinity, without simply suffering in semblance, but actually suffering really, and then ultimately suffering in such a way that this suffering does not defeat God, uh, it, it's 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 not the suffering that constrains, in some sense, or limits God, but in fact, it's suffering that is free and redemptive, and so has a purpose of human redemption as the goal. And that's only possible when the agent, uh, the the kind of ultimate subject to which suffering is attributed, effectively is God. But as Cyril of Alexandria would subsequently modify the statement and would say but suffering in and through human nature. Right. So appropriating the suffering of human nature so that he could suffer in and through it. And I don't believe, I mean, so Athanasius' position has been sometimes caricaturized as a spacesuit uh, sort of mm. Christology, meaning you simply put on, and what the spacesuit analogy, and of course that's not the analogy that Athanasius himself uses. This is a contemporary kind of unpacking of it. But the idea is, that human nature is just something very, very external to the logos. I think that's a very, that's not an adequate language. Mm -hmm. And um, perhaps, perhaps this language applies to, for example, something like Nestorian Christology, where you really have two subjects. Right. And neither in Athanasius nor in Cyril of Alexandria do you, in fact, have two agents or two subjects. Mm -hmm. But notice the language of Athanasius, interestingly, is the twofold narrative of the gospel. And that, again, simply means that Christ exists in these two important aspects, what later would be called two natures, uh, and so, or, or clearly identified as two natures, divine and human. And then it's the divine, it's the, the one who is fully God, who suffers in and through the human, the limitations of the human nature. And as we talk about that human nature, you know, one of the things that you go into in your book that we haven't had so much of a chance to talk about on the podcast is getting into some of those facets of Aryan Christology. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, there are some either self-described Aryans or others who just, you know, oppose Nicaea, but wouldn't identify as, as partisans of Arius, who say something like, well, the word of God took on flesh, but did not take on a human mind or soul. Right. And then, um, you know, those of you, um, those of you listening, this is also the position taken by Apollinaris of Laodicea, um, that person whose vibes Basil the Great did not check before allying with him, and and you know was then was then sort of tarnished by his, uh, tarnished by association. So of course, you know, eventually this idea that the logos just takes on a human body and that there's no human mind or rational soul gets anathematized later. But that idea that Christ did not have a human mind, right? That it was just the mind of the logos. What was what was at stake in that debate in this time period? So, you know, it's very hard to say specifically what was at stake for Arius uh, just because of the state of evidence. However, right. uh, that said, one one element and one 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 <clears throat> this particular sort of metaphysical unpacking of who 
the agent of the Gospels is, eliminates the problem, if you will, of two minds. Mm -hmm. So if you think of God as, again, overly literalistically, as a mind endowed with the will and acting in some sense uh, in the world, then you've got a problem of the divine mind. And then also you've got a problem of human mind and figuring out precisely how do the two interact in one age. Okay. So uh, it's interesting that that's not how typically um, the two nature Christology and then two wills Christology will be unpacked. So they actually decide that they're not going to even grapple with this particular issue. And probably because ultimately God also surpasses the divine nature has to surpass anything that we would call human mind, brain, etc. Right. So for that reason, uh, there aren't really simply two minds that you have to kind of put together. But I think the kind of the dual dual agency uh, Christology or Christology that would tend to break Jesus into two parts. And that was the tendency of Nestorian position, mm-hmm. the position of Nestorius of Constantinople in the fifth century would, would have been avoided. I think the second issue uh, is also that this is a Christology that allows you to predicate Jesus's human characteristics directly to the logos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, um, and, and on those grounds then to argue, well, you therefore have the Logos sort of participating in these experiences of suffering, of death, crucifixion, hunger, etc. Well, God as God cannot possibly do that. So you've got to have, therefore, here a diminished agent. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is what I find so problematic about the position, a very respectable view of Morris Wiles and also... Uh, RPC Hansen, who have argued at length that at the heart of the Aryan gospel, I quote, was a God who suffered. Yes. I find this problematic primarily for two main reasons. The first reason is simply that you really have a very unstable proposition in Arianism because the Logos really floats in this interesting space between a unique feature. He's not just any creature. So this is crucial. He is the firstborn of all creation. But it's still mm-hmm. creation. So right. is a this creature, unique? but not like the creatures, as yes. they so often say. And, and that's another language that's important. And the point here, I think, the fundamental issue here is really the problem of mediation. Mm-hmm. In other words, how precisely is divine agency mediated in the world? And the Aryan position is that the high God has to be protected by another lower grade, lower, metaphysically speaking, lower grade mediator from the kinds of experiences that could be attributed to him, from sort of being enmeshed in the tragedy and the life and the suffering of of of, of human condition and life, because the transcendent the transcendence of God really has to be protected. And so so what so so the mediation therefore has to be by an agent that unlike the high God is finite. Yes. And Athanasius says, I think Athanasius had a really clever uh, rebuttal to this. And he said, okay, so if you have an infinite God and then a finite mediator that it takes mm-hmm. to create the world, well, what about the mediation still of the activity between the infinite and the finite? Wouldn't you be committing yourself to an infinite number of mediators, an infinite scale of mediators between those? So you're going to, what are you going to do? You're going to multiply the saviors that themselves need saving. Mm-hmm. That was the argument that was developed in this situation. 
Yeah, in many ways, I think Athanasius's genius there was to realize that if we if we posit that the infinite can't communicate itself to the finite, right, then we're ultimately cut off from the highest God and there is no real possibility of mediation because, okay, you like it doesn't matter how big a mediator you have, right? Like it doesn't matter how great it is. It still can't cross the infinite finite divide, which is the creator creature divide at the same time. And so that's exactly right. That's that's exactly right. And I I also think that in fudging this distinction and saying, well, in some cases, we can refer to the Logos as God, because after all, that is the language of John's gospel. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's not a language that's, of course, the gospels use very often. But Mm -hmm. nevertheless, they do use that. there. Yeah. But the language is there. So you have to you have to account for that language. So sometimes we can call him second God or, uh, you know, a god who is subordinate to the high god, and in some cases we'll call him a unique creature. Well, that's a really unstable proposition, because, Mm -hmm. and at least what Athanasius has tried to drive home is really how fundamental the distinction between the transcendent, uncreated god and the rest of creation is. So I think that is the element that was so And yet, while saying that, at the same time, the claim is that that transcendent god can, in fact, intervene in the created order, can, in fact, become incarnate, assume human nature, make it his own, and then appropriate its pathy, that is to say, its experience. Right. Yeah. And it's so it's so interesting to talk about all this. I'm, um, you know, because I'm thinking about some of the later debates, you know, particularly between the Cappadocians and Eunomius. Mm-hmm. Um both of them will accuse each other of being ashamed of the cross of Christ, of yes. essentially saying, you don't have a place in your theology to account for the suffering of, of Christ. You know, mm-hmm. Eunomius will say uh, something like, in attributing this full human nature to Christ, um, and, you know, sort of mind, soul, body, all the things, you know, you, you're saying that Christ suffered in the flesh, but that Christ Christ sort of qua God didn't suffer, so you're not allowing suffering into God, unlike my scheme where the Logos really does suffer. The reply that Gregory of Nyssa will make is to say, um, excuse me, Eunomius, you're the one who says the Logos can't be, uh, can't be fully God precisely because, you know, the Logos suffers, right? That suffering yeah. is somehow um, is incompatible with the highest divinity. And so in many ways, it's like you have these these two solutions, the solution of appropriation, saying sort of the highest God, full grade A bona fide divinity, takes on human nature and suffers according to human nature. Or you say there's a second God, a lesser God, the greatest of the creatures, who suffers because the highest God can't. But in many ways, both of these are both of these theologies are actually trying to find ways of saying God suffered. Um, but there's a very profound debate about what's the most biblically responsible and logically coherent way to do that. No, that's yes, that's exactly right. And it seems to me, it seems to me, if we're saying simply that God as God, quite apart from human nature, can suffer humanly, then it's not obvious to uh, that. Frankly, it's not obvious to me why uh, God would actually take on human nature. Mm-hmm. In other words, if we're saying that, so if we, it was, was the contemporary Theopascites, if we simply want to say that God simply as God suffers, then what exactly is then the function of human nature? I mean, notice there is also a danger of rendering 
the human side of things superfluous. And so I actually, I don't want the situation where God somehow, for, I don't know, illustration purposes or mythological purposes, kind of suffers on his own and then enters the condition of human suffering to simply point out this is how he does it in eternity. And I also do not quite understand the insistence on the fact that God, that some kind of bad infinity of suffering should be attributed to God, and that actually means divine empathy. I've never, mm-hmm. I've never quite understood this point because for me, think about it this way: if we're meant ultimately for the communion with God and union with God, that means that God minimally is our best friend. Well, on the analogy of a best friend, I don't want my best friends to suffer, and I certainly don't want them to suffer. I mean, and frankly, you know, if I undergo some form of whatever, disease, suffering, etc. I don't want my friends to become a copy of that. That's not the point at all. You know, I minimally, I don't know. I want them to call a doctor. I, in other words, yeah. what I want is some action, some, some action, some intervention that changes the situation of the sufferer is, I think, much more important for a compassionate action than simply an emotional identification. Too much has been uh, sort of made of empathy that means simply an identification was the condition of the sufferer mm-hmm. but i think that element is not unimportant in other words mm-hmm. my friends have to have the capacity to grasp but this is a problem or let's say you use this wonderful example with domestic animals so i have to have the capacity to understand that the growling of a dog actually means the dog is uncomfortable mm-hmm. but then what do i do do i actually growl with it no mm-hmm. that's bizarre that seems ridiculous. No, I, I bring I bring the dog to the vet and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think that that's an expression of stoicism. I don't think that's particularly unchristian. It's it's uh, it's right there in the you know parable of the good Samaritan. It's right, right. there. I mean, you know, the good Samaritan didn't look uh, at 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 the person that was left by the wayside and said, "Oh well." This suffering is given to you so that you could understand some deep truths about God. No, he just took care of the person. And so there's a sense in which uh, what I find in the saga, in the story of the Gospels, yes, indeed, God entering the human condition of suffering and the cross and sin for, for us and for our salvation. But ultimately, we also have to account for the resurrection. And I think the way to account for the resurrection is to say that suffering and death do not have the final word in the life of God. They cannot possibly have the final word. And I think that I think most theopascites who would wish to dismiss the language of impassibility ultimately would also want to say something like that. They would want to say that there is really a victory over suffering in God rather than simply a bad infinity of suffering. Right. So I think that's a that's a, and and that is a a revelatory question, but it's also a philosophical issue. I mean, notice that these things are sort of really inextricably linked. Mm-hmm. And also, I would say there's really no metaphysics-free theopascite position. Mm-hmm. And a metaphysics or philosophy-free theopascite position is simply a position that is, you know, a few important rhetorical statements about God. So, for example, uh, Moltmann says that there is some kind of ontological break between the Father and the Son on the cross. Mm-hmm. And I would ask, well, does this happen so we don't have the Trinity for three days and then we have the Trinity back? Mm-hmm. And I was, there's plenty of questions related to God and time that are actually going to be left unaddressed in a theology that that puts such a heavy emphasis on this idea that the 
that the forsakenness, for example, of the son means that somehow there is a break between the father and the son. Okay. Yeah. And I and you've you've answered beautifully um this question of sort of why does all of this matter? What is the difference between some twentieth and twenty first century approaches that simply want to attribute suffering to God qua God, um, versus, you know, kind of the this patristic consensus you've outlined in the book. I think in many ways, um that more sort of Theopascite position. For the listeners, Theopascite it's just Theos God plus Pathos, you know, suffering, right? That's the root of it. Um, but so often that comes down to a sense that um, that classical theological traditions, whether we're talking about, you know, the theology of the Cappadocians or Thomism that dominated the Catholic Church for so long, there's um, there's this sense that it sees God as sort of in, insufficiently relational and sort of insufficiently involved with us. And the the idea behind ascribing that kind of suffering is to affirm God's deep involvement with humanity. And I think what I'm hearing you articulate is a rejoinder to that, which essentially says God is deeply involved with humanity, but we have to ask what kind of relationship that is and, you know, the sorts of beings that we are dealing with. You know, first of all, if we think God infinitely transcends, you know, our even our imagination, then we have to be careful when we start talking about what kind of emotions that God might or might not have, because there's a lot we don't know. And second, you know, even when we make these kind of analogical statements, because as you say, you know, there are emotions that are perfections that we can appropriately attribute to God because the Bible attributes mm-hmm. them to God. But when we create those analogies, are we actually using the best possible examples? You know, is a God who is so overwhelmed with empathy as to suffer exactly as we do and to be as helpless as we are in the face of that kind of emotional turmoil, you know, would that be helpful in a human being? Not particularly. And of course, the advice that is often given to priests and therapists and social workers and all other kinds of helpers is don't, you know is don't do that. <laughs> Be differentiated enough from the people you're helping that you can help them. And the analogy you often use in the book is that of a compassionate doctor. You know, somebody who can see your pain, know how painful it is, but then is, you know, is still functional enough to be able to prescribe a treatment or do the surgery. And that's, that's exactly our that's exactly that's exactly right. And I think that a lot of my uh, seminary students with whom we've discussed these matters, precisely use the analogy of pastoral care mm-hmm. and the extent to which a significant element of impassibility or apathia or transcendence of the condition of the person that you're dealing with is absolutely vital mm-hmm. for actually to want to offer kind of divinely guided or grace-filled help in the situation. Mm-hmm. And so it's if you will, detachment is as important as empathy in this situation. And I would say that the doctors, after reading my book on impassibility, kind of wrote to me and said that that's exactly, especially surgeons, Mm -hmm. they said that captures very well what I'm doing because I cannot collapse in the surgical room because I am overpowered by emotions confronted with human tragedy. I actually, I cannot become the second patient. I mean, there is a very particular thing that I have to do as a doctor. And very often, 
these things are still end up being painful for the patient. Maybe not during the surgery, because of course of the painkillers, but certainly in the post-surgical yeah. uh, period, as we many of us have experienced, these things actually inflict pain. But it's a pain for the sake of still the greater good. Yeah, greater good, exactly. Great, greater good. I mean, what's at stake here is not. I mean, it looks bad. It looks like somebody is interfering with all kinds of implements and is doing this person some kind of damage. But of course, in in the broader context, this is understood as an action that changes the situation of the sufferer or the person having a particular ailment for the better. Uh, it's interesting that nurses told me uh, that they really are in the empathy business and they are like, trying to make. Although even they would also say that we're also counseled that we as humans have finite capacity for empathy. And we also have to sort of be careful as to how we uh, also uh, administer it, if you will, or, or share it. Uh, but but I, and I, and I also think, of course, on the human side of things, it's really significant that and the element of emotional identification is important for us because we're finite agents and we cannot simply comprehend the situation of the other human being. But for a God who is omnipotent uh, and omniscient, in other words, who is all-knowing, mm-hmm. um, if it is a case that God is all-knowing, then he would not need uh, simply emotional identification to enter and understand our condition. And so if God suffers, he suffers in such a way that his suffering is free, that his suffering is in and through the human condition that he is changing. And ultimately, really, it is for the salvation and redemption of the world. It cannot simply be a bad infinity of suffering. And I think that's really the principal position that I was trying to argue against. And I would say that um, after the book appeared, And generally speaking, in the decade after that, I think there's been a significant change in the theological appropriation. And so the Theopascite revolution that you've identified in the 20th century, the shift to the God who suffers, I think a lot of theologians now approach the topic much more cautiously. Yes. Yeah. And you've given such a wonderful articulation of exactly why. And um I just want to thank you again, Professor Gavriluk, for being on the podcast with us today. So glad to join you. This is an Earth and Alter Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.